0: 23. Today I'm going to be preaching a second sermon in a series um, that I'm preaching titled Spoken from the Cross. We're examining the things that the Lord said after being nailed to the cross. Uh, today we will look at the second thing that He said, and uh, we will begin in verse 42 and just read through verse 43, two verses today, and then I'm going to preach the uh, I will ask that you would one last time, please, stand to your feet in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 42. The Word of God says, Then He said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let us pray. Father, it has been good this morning already. Father, I understand that church is not a building. It is not a place that you even come to, God, but church is a group of believers coming together to worship our King. And Lord, this morning we have certainly come to church. We thank you for your presence, Lord. God, I sense, Lord, your Spirit here already trying to soften hearts and deal with hearts and encourage hearts. And Lord, we just want you to have your way. We do ask, God, that this morning, if there be any way possible, God, that if there be sinners in this place that yet have not known You in the free pardon of sin, that, God, today You would open their eyes and they would run to You and see their need for a Savior. Lord, I ask that You would anoint me now, Father, and I acknowledge, Father, the need for the anointing from heaven, the unction that only You can give, that there is nothing in and of myself, there is nothing in a man, God, that can change others, Lord. It is You alone that changes, Father. And this morning we pray that you would do it only you can. We'll be careful to give you and you only the glory and the praise for what you have done and what you will do in your house. We ask it this morning in the precious name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Before I get to our text, can I say that there are no accidents in a world governed by God? Much less on this Day. God was before time. There is no time with God. He has always existed and always will exist. It is something that is very difficult for you and I to comprehend in, in our miniature and tiny minds. But in the world that we live in, we live in time. Something that is created for a very brief breath. And in the world of time, there has never been a day more significant than the day of the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the most important day, literally the most important hours, in the history of the world in every day that has ever been and in every day that will ever come. And we can rest assured that on this day... Especially in this place, there was nothing that happened by accident, but that every step, every breath, every look, every word spoken, every person in place was strategically placed by the hand of Almighty God that He might fulfill His redemptive purpose for mankind. And it would do us well as we are doing to take a serious look at that day and what the Lord spoke from the cross that He came into this world to die on. God had decided that the Christ would hang there between two thieves and die. In Isaiah chapter 53, the Word tells us that uh, He would be numbered with the transgressors. How unlikely is it that the Holy One of God, the Chosen One of Israel, the very One who would inscribe with His own finger on the tablets the laws of God, to think that that Holy One would be numbered with the very lawbreakers on that day is an unthinkable thought. But it did occur. And it was no accident of God. Why was He numbered with the lawbreakers? Why was our Savior crucified between two thieves? I can tell you this, as I've already said once, it was no accident. And what do we have to learn from it this morning in our text? First of all, I'll tell you, it was to demonstrate to us the unfathomable depths to which He would descend for our sakes. When we realize... What our Savior was willing to descend to, that He might have a relationship with us, it is unfathomable. It is almost impossible for you and I to fully grab the extent of the shame and the suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ would go through simply so He could have a relationship with you. The grace of God, is it is vast beyond our imagination. I have been handed one of the most difficult duties that a man could ever be handed this morning and that's trying to paint a picture of the unpainable picture of God's grace. It's trying to explain the unexplainable greatness of God's grace. It's trying to, it's trying to put into words somehow how great this God loves us. And yet, with everything that I will do this morning, it will still require the revelation of God to open our minds and our hearts to see it's even greater than we could imagine. One of the reasons he had to be nailed to the tr- that cross between two thieves was to show us the depths that he would descend to that he might have a relationship with you and I. It was also to show us the position that you and I should have assumed. His place was my place, I was the one that deserved death. For the wages of sin is death, and all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And His position there between two lawbreakers, two thieves worthy of death, is the position that He stepped in, in my stead, that I wouldn't have to go there. It was no accident He was hung between two thieves. Also to show us the drama of salvation. We have the Savior... And we have man's response to his salvation. One thief is saved, the other is not. Both men saw the same thing. Both men walked with him that day up that hill of Calvary. Both men saw the the, the, the horrid acts that had taken place to him and as we'll examine later, both men reviled him, calling him names, accusing him. But at the end of the day, there was one that was saved and one that was lost. We see the same thing happen today. One receive him, another reject him. Under the same circumstances, one man's heart is melted and another remains unmoved.
1: I watch it happen
0: week after week as I spend my life preaching. The same sermon, the same text the same experience, the same songs, the same offer of salvation, and one heart is melted and one heart runs to God while another heart remains unmoved. I don't understand the mystery of it, but I know that we see it even here. There's something to learn from that as well, and we'll see that in a moment. But we see victorious grace for the saved man like nowhere else. Why, Joplin, why do you say this is such a picture of grace? Well, first of all, because a man had no works before he was saved. You know how often we see salvation uh, in, in three different ways we think salvation occurs. And I'm going to show you how none of those happened with this man. It is a beautiful picture of God's sovereign grace to save us. The first is he had no works to bring him to God. How often do we feel like, well, I realize I need to be saved. I realize there's something wrong with me. I want a relationship with God. And so all of a sudden we begin repairing ourselves. We begin fixing ourselves. That I might be presentable to God. That I might be able to at least say, Father, Lord God, I know all that I've done. I know that I was a wicked man. I know that I was a wicked woman. But now I have turned a new leaf. Now I have done this thing and I've done these things and I feel like it is time to present myself to You and ask for Your forgiveness of my former things. Often we come to God on the basis of works. Have you ever had anybody tell you there's just some things that need to get changed in their life first before they'll come to church. You can change everything in your life, friend. Everything. And you're going to need just as much grace to get saved then as before. That is the tactic of the devil, to keep people away. Thinking, well, I need to change Late, There are some things I need to change before I come to God. The thief had no opportunity to change. He had no works before. But he also had no works after. You see, this is also kind of a false view of the church. It's, we have this idea, we have this mentality that, that well, God will save me as I am. And so I just ask God for forgiveness, but then afterwards there's kind of this testing and proving period where, you, where you prove to God that you've really changed and therefore your salvation becomes authentic and real. This thief had no chance to do anything. For His hands and His feet, too, were nailed to the cross. He could not be baptized. He could not turn over a new leaf in His life. There were no good works that He could do to prove that He was repentant. And we see in the salvation of the thief, there were no works before and there were no works after. And then we see the third thing that we often use as a prop, not intentionally, but it robs God of His glory of grace. And that third prop is this, the instrument of human intervention. How often do we think, well, they got saved because, because they had a praying grandma that prayed all the time or Wow, Joplin really preached a strong message this morning and people got saved. Man, the singing in that place, it just melted hearts and people got saved. And, and we, we've got all these things that we often think have to be in place in order for people to get saved. And, 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 and our society, will turn down the lights and we'll play the right music and we'll try to create the right emotional uh, atmosphere where people feel like getting saved. And, and they're drawn because of all of that. But for just a moment, can we please examine event from the eyes of this thief on the cross. His disciples have abandoned him. Any ounce of strength and majesty that the Savior once walked with as He was healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and teaching with authority the Word tells us that none had ever heard taught with before. All of that was in the past. And the Lord has laid that down in the Garden of Gethsemane and all the strength and all of the majesty had been stripped away from him. And this thief had watched him be beaten and stricken and the beard plucked from his face. The Bible tells us they were led together with him up that, up the hill to Calvary. Which means he had watched the Savior literally sink underneath the weight of the cross and then have to have one come and help him carry it. Public opinion was against the Savior. The religious leaders of the day were standing there mocking him. Lord, you have helped others. Now save yourself and come down off that cross circumstances were against him. And yet, something happened. And we're going to examine it this morning. Something happened because of the amazing grace of God where he would speak the word Lord. What would cause this man to see this other who had been beaten and stricken and fallen under the weight of the cross, whose own disciples had abandoned him, who was there all along, what would cause him to see him as God? the Savior of the world. There is nothing that can be explained except the amazing grace of God. Can I tell you this morning to the church? We need to grab a hold of this principle and understand God doesn't need our tactics. God doesn't need our songs. God doesn't need our three-point sermons. God doesn't need anything to do His marvelous work of grace and save souls. And when we would get a hold of that, I believe that it would change the way that we pray. And we'd simply begin praying, God move in this place this morning. God give spiritual revelation to souls and to blinded eyes that they might see they need you. And we'd spend a little less time praying about, God give us a new building. God give us a new TV. God give us new things and new ways to reach people. And we see that God can do what God wants to do with or without the right circumstances in our lives. This thief was saved with no works before, no works after, and contrary circumstances. There's nothing that can explain it but the grace of God. Absolutely nothing. Nothing. He took this crucified, suffering, and bleeding man for his God. Let's go to our text. <clears throat> These were the thieves hanging on the cross. And in verse 39, then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. First of all, this morning we must understand, again, there are no accidents. This is the very first person ever to be saved after the cross. Why did God choose a thief as the very first person to be saved after the cross? The answer this morning is because He is our representative sinner. He is all of us. It's important to first note that he was just like the other man. In Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to read it to you, verses 41 through 44, we see that just like the other thief, this man was cursing the Master. Verse 41, likewise the chief priest, also mocking with the scribes and the elders, said, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him come down now from the cross and we will believe Him. He trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Now look at verse 44. Even the robbers, plural, who were crucified with Him, reviled Him With the same thing. Back to our text. It's important to understand this man was just like the other man. There have been fools that have tried to explain that this thief was more righteous than the other. That he deserved salvation more than the other. But this is not true. He was just like the other man. Wicked from his birth. For there is no difference. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Look at His depravity. Even on the brink of eternity, He knew where He was going. To the cross. He knew He was moments from the last breath He would ever breathe. He knew He was moments for once and for all, finally coming to know exactly what is on the other side of this thing we call life. And even hours before this, his depraved mind has him ridiculing and reviling and teasing the Holy One of God. But something happens to this man and he cries out, Lord, remember me. Something happens to Him, and that's what I want to examine this morning. Lord, remember me. Can I tell you this morning that we must take the place as lost sinners before Him if we will ever be saved. God came to this earth to save sinners. To seek and save that which was lost. But you will never be saved until you're willing to take your rightful place as a sinner. Separated from a holy God in need of salvation. God chose a thief that day as a representative for us. You might say, I'm not a thief. You might say, Joplin, I'm not really a bad person. And, and to, try to, to try to identify myself with that thief on the cross is a little over the top. Is it Really? Because I'm not the one that made the decision, by the way, to have a thief nailed next to the Savior that day. That was by the divine hand of God. He was our representative. You realize the Bible says that you were fearfully and wonderfully made. That you were made by Him and for Him. This means that from your birth, You have talents that God gave you that were meant to be used for the purpose of glorifying Him and drawing closer to Him and pointing people to Him. You have talents that God gave you that were meant to be used for His glory. You have a brain that works, that God uh, built in you that you might seek after Him and learn more about Him and, 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 and find a relationship with Him through His Word. You have these things that God has given you that were meant to draw you nearer to Him. But you've taken what God gave you and you've used it for purposes on yourself. You've taken the talents and the treasures that, that were meant to, to, to bring God glory and you've used them for the purpose of going after the, 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 the prince of this world. And thus, each and every one of us have literally taken what God gave us to use for His purposes. And used it on ourselves. And this is why God sees you and I as thieves. All of us. Every one of us. You might have never stolen a thing from anybody else in your life, but you've stolen from God. We're thieves and that's how He sees us. In need of forgiveness. We must see our text this morning. As a representative of all mankind. This is the first man to ever be saved after the cross. And you and I are that man this morning. Before we can be saved, we must take our rightful place and see ourselves as that thief. See ourselves as a lost sinner before God. Also, we see this morning that until a man has come to the end of himself, he cannot be saved. Until a man or a woman has come to the end of his or herself... They cannot be saved. We have to be abased and humbled before we can be exalted. We must see ourselves as helpless. To see myself as a lost sinner is not enough. It is step one. You need to see yourself as a lost sinner before God. You need to place yourself correctly before the Holy One, the Maker of your soul, a lost sinner before Him, but simply seeing myself as that lost sinner in and of itself is not enough. I must know that I'm helpless to fix my own situation. I must see that I need someone to do for me what I cannot do for myself. Lord, remember me. You see, hanging there, He could do nothing. He couldn't be baptized. He could not perform any good works to prove to the Lord that he's, his, his heart was sincere. He could, not live long, he could not live long enough to build a case for becoming worthy. He could not turn over a new leaf. He was literally hanging there to die helpless. We also must see ourselves in the same state if we're ever to find true salvation. If man is slow to learn that he is a lost sinner, he is even slower to learn that he is unable to do anything about it. Often when we become convinced that we are unworthy to come into the presence of God and that I am a lost sinner, we think there's something we can do about it. And a lot of times, we try things. We try coming to church. Coming to church is a good thing. I'm glad I'm here this morning. This is nowhere I'd rather be. But you see, we try to do things to fix our situation. When we realize we're a lost sinner, it takes us a little bit of time sometimes to come to the grips that I'm helpless to do anything about it. I can't just change my situation. I can't just... Uh, begin to do the right things and hopefully live long enough that finally the scales begin to tip. I'm helpless. There's nothing I can do about what I have done. I am guilty before God. And there are no works, there are no things, there is no ceremony, there is no baptism, there is no pronouncing of something by some other pastor or some religion that can wash all that away. I am helpless before God and I need His intervention to forgive and to remember me. We must first see we are lost sinners, but seeing that is not enough. I must realize there is nothing I can do about it. And I am now at the mercy of God. Can you you see with me how this thief paints a perfect picture of salvation and the need for grace in every single role? There is nothing we can do but believe. Nothing we can do but look to the Savior to do for us what we can't do for ourselves and believe that He is able. Lord, remember me. The sinner must be cut off from his own works. He must learn that he cannot fix himself up. And he must be made willing to be saved by Christ. We also see in our text the meaning of repentance and faith. This is a very important one, especially in our culture, where we have lost sight of repentance. I asked a pastor the other day if he believed that a person had to repent to be saved and he hesitated. There should be no hesitation. A little piece of theology 101, in case you didn't know, the very first word Jesus preached was repent. That's the first word out of His mouth when He began to preach. Repent. When Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and the people came and said, what must we do? asking what they needed to do to be saved, the first word out of Peter's mouth, repent. Repentance is an important thing. We need to understand it. This morning we see the meaning of repentance and faith in a very amazing way because again, this thief could not come down off the cross and walk the right way. Repentance is more than a sorrowing of sin. It's It's even more than a forsaking of sin. It's more than a simple change of mind. It is all of those things. If you truly repent, you will forsake sin. You will turn from walking this direction and begin following after Christ if you truly repent, there will be a godly sorrow for the sin that has separated us from God and crucified Christ on the cross. But it's more than a simple change of mind. It is the realization of our lost condition. It is the discovery of our ruin. It is a correct judgment of myself. It is the correct owning of the things I have done. I am a sinner. And the reason I'm a sinner is because I'm a wicked person. I did what I did because I am a sinner and God is my enemy. And until I can own that, until I can earnestly and honestly say, I need salvation. Until I can quit justifying my actions. Well, I lied because of this. Well, I stole because of this. Well, I was hateful because of this. I sinned because of this. I broke the law because of the way I was raised. I was against God because nobody taught me right. No, friends, the real reason we're against God is because we are sinners from birth. I am wicked at my heart and I am in need of a Savior. And true repentance requires me Owning that. Coming to grips with who I am. I've said it this way before. It's not difficult for us to acknowledge that what I've done is wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. But it's a whole lot more difficult for us to acknowledge I am wrong. There is something wrong with me. And that's why I do wrong things. True repentance requires both. It is a realization of our lost condition. It is as much of an intellectual process in the sight of God as a physical process. In other words, it's more than simply quit doing bad things. You know, there are people who mistake repentance and think that it's It's a simple choice to do the right thing. But it's as much as an internal change of mind and change of heart that produces external change. Simply changing things that you're doing doesn't mean that you're saved. Simply deciding, well, I'm not going to go to this place anymore, I'm not going to do that, does not necessarily mean there's a real internal change. And our subject here on the cross had no opportunity to do any. We know this. It was a change of mind and a change of heart. Because God knows the hearts. He knows what we think. Notice He says, do you not fear punishment in verse 40. A short time ago, He was reviling the Savior. A short time ago, He was mocking Him. But now... He apprehends God as judge and he sees himself as guilty. We saw that in verse 41. For we receive the due reward for our deeds. He passes sentence upon himself. And I tell you that Christ came for sinners. Sinners who will rightly place themselves as they are. Sinners before a holy God. Saving faith is more than a correct opinion. It is more than a right train of thought. It is from the heart. Now, I'll tell you this morning that real saving faith will bring about true change in our life. I also want us to look at the revelation that was needed to be saved the progress that this man came through in just a few short hours. I want to share with you seven things real quick in our text. It's amazing all that is in our text this morning. Seven things quickly that had to take place for Him to be saved. Revealed to Him by the illumination of the Holy Spirit. First of all, we see the belief in a future life and retribution. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knew there was a reward that was coming for the things that would take place after He died. Secondly, we see that he became aware of his sinful condition concerning the future. Thirdly, we see that the Savior is sinless. In verse 41, this man has done nothing. So he sees himself as a sinner. He sees the Lord as the sinless one. And he sees his place as God. He calls Him Lord. And he realizes not only is he Lord, not only is he God, but he is a Savior. For he was willing to ask that he remember Him. He mentions the kingdom and we see that he has revelation that the Savior is the King. And then he has revelation that He's coming back. The second coming. When you come into your kingdom. It's difficult for us to grasp the entire picture this morning, but can I remind you that moments, moments earlier, this man is cursing the Savior. He is mocking Him like everybody else. And now all of a sudden he has this revelation that He is God. That He might listen to me if I ask for forgiveness. That there is a kingdom that is coming. That there is life after this death, and I'm going to pay for my rewards. What can be explained for this man's revelation except the grace of God? There is no explanation. None whatsoever. I'm telling you, church, when we get a hold of this, we'll understand how to better pray. We just need God this morning to breathe on us and to open our eyes and to open our hearts and to open our minds to see Him for who He is. It doesn't matter how well I preach. It doesn't matter how well we sing. What matters is that God shows up and that He gives revelation to what is true. And when God does that, God will save sinners and amazing things will happen because our God is able. We see this on the cross. There's nothing that can account for it except for spiritual illumination. And finally, we see the Savior speak this morning. And I'll be quick. I love this text. This man who just moments before was accusing him and mocking him says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say in return? You should have thought about that before you were crucified, sir. It's a little too late now. Sure, you'll acknowledge me as Lord because you're about to die. It's not what he says at all. We see the amazing compassion and grace of God. Jesus says, he that cometh to me in no wise will I cast out. Isn't it interesting that Christ makes absolutely no response to the crowd? He was led like a lamb, silent to his slaughterers. And to the crowd there that's mocking him and saying... If your God come down off of that, you claim to be the Son of God. He is speechless. He says nothing to them as they stand there and mock Him publicly. But when the thief says, remember me, all of a sudden he breaks his silence and speaks. Man, it's an amazing thought. Can I tell you that in the midst of everything that was going on, in the midst of his agony and his pain and the mocking, Christ was willing to stop and listen to this thief. Do you not realize how important you are to him this morning? It is incredible how important one soul is to him. He has descended to the depths of shame to show us how important one soul is. He asks the question, what worse is it if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Trying to teach us that in the sight of God, this entire world that He created is not nothing compared to the value of one soul. He loves you this morning. We see that Christ was willing to stop with the woman at the well He was willing to have one-on-one time with Nicodemus. He was willing to stop at Zacchaeus in the tree. And even moments before his last dying breath, he was willing to listen to to the request of that thief dying there. It is amazing. This contrite prayer of this dying man grabbed his attention. Can I tell you that Christ still deals with one man and one woman at a time? Why are you here this morning? Could it be that God Himself brought you here to deal with you? Do you find it difficult to think that you are that important in the eyes of God? Do you find it difficult to think that God would love you enough to orchestrate something just for you? Because He does. Because you were made by Him and for Him. And if he, would, if he would go all the way down to the depths of the shame of the cross, trust me, friend, He would do anything for you to come to Him. Even from the agony of the cross, the Savior can save. Never doubt His power to save just one. We also see the destination of those who are saved Paradise, it is a better place where there's no pain and there's no suffering. The thief asked to be remembered, but Christ said that he would be with him. You know, when we die, those of us that are saved, we are with Christ. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 and verse 59 looked into the heavens and was placed into the hands of His Lord. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, I have a desire and go to be with Christ, which is far better. We are not in an unconscious state, but we are in a grave, but we are with Christ. Our soul is there. As I close this morning, I want us to look at perhaps the most important part of this message. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with Me in paradise. Notice He did not say, Assuredly, today you will be in paradise. But He said, You will be with Me in paradise. You see, that's what makes paradise really paradise. I do thank God there will be no pain. I do thank God there will be no sickness. I do thank God that we'll be once and finally and forever freed from anything that has to do with sin. But the greatest thing of all is that we will be with Him. We see in this the heart of the Savior. His desire is simply to be with us. You know, there are some of you here this morning you've been fighting God. Because the devil has painted some stupid, erroneous picture Of Christianity. And you think that it's this list of rules. And and it's it's what you can't do versus what you can do. And if I surrender to God, then then I'm going to... It's just like having a ball and chain on my leg. And I can go so far, but no further. You don't realize. God simply wants to be with you. He simply wants to be with you. This thief, this wicked man, who was cursing the Savior hours before, the Savior says, You'll be with me. We see his desire simply to be with us. Do you know God wants a relationship with you? He wants you. It's not your pocketbook that He wants. It's not your home that He wants. It's not your career that He wants. It's not your boyfriend that He wants. It's not your girlfriend that He wants. It's not this. It's you. He wants you. And He loves you with a love deeper than I could ever explain this morning. And His grace is so vast beyond all and everything you have ever done. You need no works before now to come to Him this morning. You need no works after now to be saved. You are saved by faith, by grace through faith. And there will be works if God gives you the opportunity to live another day. Because when we build that relationship with Him, our hearts yearn to please Him. When you realize in the depth of your soul, God just wants me. He wants me. He loves me. He sees me as valuable. You'll long to please Him. You'll long to walk with Him. You'll long to honor Him in all that you do. Today, He will be with me. And it was this desire that He might be with us that is the driving force of the cross. As our worship team comes this morning, I want to speak to two people. First of all, to the child of God this morning. Aren't you thankful for grace? And oh, that God would remind us. We are what we are by the grace of God. We ought to be good moral people. We ought to do the right thing. We ought to tell the truth. We ought to be men and women of integrity. But those things do not make me right with God. It is the grace of the Savior. It is the grace of the cross. And I don't know about you, but as I studied this, this this just screamed at me. And this morning I was thinking about the amazing grace of God. What I was without Him. What He's done for me. And I was just a little overwhelmed by God's goodness in my life. Maybe this morning as a child of God, you just need to take a moment to respond this morning and tell God. Raise a hand to Him. Sing a song to Him. Find a place to kneel. Thank God for His amazing grace and His desire to simply be with you. And then I want to speak this morning to the sinner. We are all that man. We have all fallen short. But have you looked to Him this morning for salvation? Have you come to the place of seeing yourself as a lost sinner? And then have you taken it a step further and come to the realization there's nothing you can do about it? And unless God finds favor and forgives you of your sins, you're hopelessly doomed. This morning, the Savior stands with arms wide open It says, come unto me all ye who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Will you come this morning? Will you come and look to heaven for salvation? Look to Christ alone in the work of the cross to purge you of your sins. Do you not know that maybe today God has brought you here for this reason? If you're not saved... You need to be. Today is the day of salvation. There's not anything you need to do in the sense of this work or that work. There's not any progress or process that you need to go through in the sense of you need to do this thing and then this thing and this work here. And by next week on Wednesday, you should be in a place to be saved. You can be saved right here, right now, this morning, this very moment. simply need to be willing to see yourself for who you are, sinner, in need of redemption. And be willing to believe in Christ for that. All heads are bowed, all eyes are closed. We're going to worship God together.